0: Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Educating Investors Podcast. My name is Scott Peterson, Financial Advisor of Harmony Wealth Management. Thanks for tuning in for today's episode, Omicron, the Fed, and Recent Volatility. I believe that educated investors equal successful investors. The goal of this podcast is to help educate as many individuals as possible on markets, the economy, and financial planning topics volatility in the market has picked up over the last week due to several reasons. The most important cause of the recent volatility is the new variant of the coronavirus and the recent testimony by Fed Chairman Jerome Powell potentially speeding up their tapering of asset purchases due to lingering inflation concerns. What could this mean for the economy and the markets? Worse, about a new COVID-19 variant of concern, labeled Omicron by the World Health Organization, triggered the recent stock sell-off. The World Health Organization says Omicron was first identified in South Africa, but has been found in Hong Kong, Israel, Belgium, and now the United States. The new COVID-19 virus variant Omicron has a large number of mutations, some of which are concerning. The variant has emerged so rapidly that scientists don't yet know exactly how fast it spreads, how it reacts to vaccines, nor to antibodies in people who had recovered from an earlier COVID-19 infection. The World Health Organization says those questions might take weeks to answer. Countries have started to begin travel restrictions while others, including Austria, have embarked on lockdowns even before the new variant was identified. We'll learn more about the new variant in coming weeks, but here are some of what we know now from information put together by Michael Sumblis, Chairman of the Market and Investment Strategy at J.P. Morgan. The Omicron variant has 32 mutations of the spike protein alone, compared to the Delta variant, which had only 9. This is a very large degree of mutation. As a reminder, vaccines target the spike protein based on its three-dimensional shape. So the more severe the topographic mutation of the spike protein, the greater the risk of lower efficacy for any vaccine developed versus a prior variant. Importantly, the Omicron variant is not genetically descended from the Delta variant, suggesting it probably mutated over time in a single immunocompromised person. The tens of millions of immunocompromised people around the world serve as incubators for mutations since existing vaccines are less effective in such people and they can remain infectious for several months. The Omicron variant could be a serious risk to global health. Nine of its mutations have been seen and other variants of concern. Eight have not been seen before, but lab data suggests they are a threat. And some of the other mutations are unknown and still need to be examined. Some Omicron mutations have properties that signify potential resistance to antibodies derived from existing vaccines. Other Omicron mutations show potential for increased transmissibility and increased infectivity. It's important to point out that vaccination rates are only 24% full and 28% partial in South Africa. So we don't have information yet on what Omicron spread might look like in places with higher vaccination levels, nor do we have any information on Omicron disease severity. The good news about Omicron, unlike other variants, it can be tracked via simple PCR tests and will not require genomic sequencing to identify. mRNA vaccines are relatively easy to alter compared to other vaccine types. Once a change is made to recognize the new spike proteins, only two dozen people need to enroll in a trial to make sure the updated vaccine works, after which it can be distributed. This process could take four to six weeks, but as you can imagine, the process of revaccinating everyone for a new variant would be logistically challenging if required. One of the most important things to track right now is hospitalization rates in South Africa where the Omicron outbreak was occurring. So far, there has been no increase in hospital or ICU admissions, but given how recent the outbreak has been, it's too soon for that. By mid-December, we should have a better read on in vitro vaccine effects to see and Omicron disease severity. While we don't know yet how far efficacy will decline in vaccinated people, if this variant spreads, it's fair to say that for unvaccinated people, the risk of infection and other severe outcomes may have just risen again. The most recent data already shows a very large gap between hospitalizations and mortality rates for vaccinated and unvaccinated people. Here are four possible economic outcomes, according to Jan Hatia's Goldman Sachs chief economist. The downside scenario, a Q1 infection wave leading to a sizable GDP hit, That hit to activity then gradually abates starting in spring as antivirals and redesigned vaccines are distributed. Inflation is probably below our current forecast in service and energy, but above our current forecast in goods. The severe downside scenario, a less likely case that is worse than Delta, where global growth is significantly lower than at the first downside scenario, given more intense hospital pressure, severe restrictions, and consumer fear. Inflation faces a larger push and pull between services and energy and goods. The false alarm scenario where Omicron spreads less quickly than Delta with little impact on growth and inflation. The ability of Omicron to outcompete Delta in South Africa does not necessarily carry over to other geographies with higher vaccination or lower prior infection rates. Finally, the upside scenario where the variant is more transmissible but causes much less severe disease. In this speculative normalization scenario, a net reduction in bird's global growth higher than our baseline. In this scenario, global infection likely decline more quickly than our baseline scenario because the rebalancing of demand from goods to services and recovering goods and labor supply accelerate. So the hope is that even though the variant may be more transmissible, that it causes much less severe disease, especially in those that are vaccinated. If this were the case, developed countries that have been more vaccinated would continue to see their economies reopen, while those countries, especially developing and emerging markets, which are less vaccinated, potentially impeding their economic reopening even longer. This is important as it could be a large factor in determining what the Federal Reserve will do in terms of tightening monetary policy, which is another reason for the increase in volatility. Fed Chair Jerome Powell told a recent Senate committee that the strength of growth and the degree of inflationary pressure could prompt the bank to speed up its reduction in monthly bond purchases that began in 2020 to help the economy weather the pandemic. As announced earlier in November, the Fed made its initial cut of $15 billion, lowering its monthly purchases to $105 billion from $120 billion previously. Powell emphasized these central bank assets purchases, while smaller, are continuing to eject liquidity into the financial system. If officials were to quicken the pace at which they reduce the purchases by $30 billion a month after the December meeting, they could conclude the program by March, giving them more flexibility to raise rates in the first half of next year, which could be a further blow to economic growth. Currently, the CME Fed Funds feature as of December 9th show the probability of the first rate hike coming in May of 2022 with the possibility of a second rate hike in July and a chance of a third in December. We will learn more about the Fed accelerating the reduction of its asset purchase stimulus program at its meeting on December 14th and 15th, when we should have more information on the new variant, and the Fed will also put out its most recent summary of economic projections. From a market perspective, the market hates uncertainty, which has been causing the volatility. This recent volatility has led to a decline in investor optimism, which is normally a bullish short-term contrarian indicator for markets. The CNN Fear and Greed Index as of December 1st was at the extreme fear level. The CNN Money, Fear, and Greed Index is an investment sentiment indicator that looks at seven indicators including stock price momentum, stock price strength, stock price breadth, put and call options, junk bond demand, market volatility, and safe haven demand to determine current investor sentiment on the market. This is also shown on the AAII Investor Sentiment Survey for December 1st. The survey asks which direction AAI members, which are individual investors, feel the stock market will go in the next six months. For the week ending December 1st, the bearish investors hit a one-month high, which again is a contrarian indicator for short-term market moves. So, as individual investors tend to get more bearish or fearful, this tends to lead to short-term bullish conditions for the market to potentially move higher. The concern is that the longer that this uncertainty on the new variant and monetary policy sticks around, the longer volatility will be with us and potentially lower markets. My concern is that if the market continues to move lower, that it could be accelerated due to the large amount of leverage in the market. Currently, there is a record level of margin debt, and historically, margin debt tops tend to occur around market tops, as can be seen in 2000 and 2007. Margin debt leads to additional dollars moving into the equity market and can help push the markets higher. The markets tend to have a steep enough pullback. Investors could be hit with margin calls to bring in additional funds to meet equity requirements that can lead to further selling and lead to steeper downturns. This would be an issue now because with the record level of margin debt that investors have, they also have a negative credit balance, which means that in the case of a market downturn, that if investors were hit with margin calls, that they would need to liquidate securities to cover those calls, leading to a deeper downturn in the market. And this is happening during a time of increased valuations on the market. Some positive news about the seasonality of the market is that December tends to be a positive month for the market. Since 1950, December is up more often than any other month, with it being up 74.6% of the time. Historically, the S&P 500 index has gained 1.5% on average in December, which is the third best month of the year, with only April and November better. And historically, the Santa Claus rally doesn't tend to start until about the middle of the month. What does this all mean looking forward? Economic growth should be above trend next year, but continue to slow toward trend growth seen before the pandemic due to declining in working age population, low birth rates, and declining immigration, as well as high debt to GDP levels. Tightening monetary policy and less fiscal support will also lead to slower economic growth. Tapering beginning in November should go through mid-year before the possibility of Fed raising the Fed funds rate is currently pricing in one rate hike in 2022, while the market is pricing in three, with the first one currently estimated for May of 2022. Based on the current economic conditions, higher productivity would be needed for economic growth to grow faster. Economic growth will also start to slow globally as central banks begin to tighten monetary policy and governments begin to pull back on fiscal stimulus. However, should be above trend pre-pandemic next year. Developed international economies like the Eurozone and Japan have similar high debt to GDP levels that over time lead to slower economic growth. Central banks are becoming more concerned that transitory inflation may be around longer than they expected due to supply chain constraints. Core PC, the Fed preferred measure of inflation, along with other measures of inflation, are currently above their target of 2% average inflation. Reversals of base effects and supply constraints improving will eventually lead to inflation moving back toward their target over time. When looking at current inflation expectations of consumers, the markets, and economists, they show that although elevated, that longer term they show inflation slowing. I believe over time that the forces of lower inflation, including a slowing economy and older demographics, increasing use of technologies, increasing numbers of zombie companies, and an increasing level of unproductive debt will be stronger than those for higher levels of inflation. Central banks around the world are also tightening monetary policy to deal with current higher inflation rates. Central banks, including South Korea, Norway, and others have raised rates. Central banks worldwide have taken 500 policy decisions as of the end of November of 2021 with monetary policy stance easing 41 times and tightening 147 times. Monetary easing steps accounted for 24.1% of all changes to monetary policy stances year-to-date, while monetary tightening steps accounted for 85 or three, 85.3% of all changes to monetary policy stances year-to-date. As the Fed announces their intention of tapering their asset purchases, 10-year treasury yields tend to move higher before they move lower, along with the yield curve flattening as the tapering starts. Investors have done well selling bonds when the Fed is buying during QE and buying bonds at the end of QE and tapering. This would make sense if the Fed is tightening policy to slow growth and or inflation. Investors should look to purchase bonds as growth and inflation slows. If this historical trend continues with the Fed beginning to taper, then lengthening duration as rates are raising would make sense to take advantage of rates eventually falling. Rates can only tend to move up so much. Yields in the 2 to 2.5% range are consistent with the Fed long run target for the Fed funds rate. In the past 10-year, in the past cycles, 10-year yields have peaked near the peak in the Fed funds rate. This would mean that the top of the 10-year treasury yields would be around 2.5% based on the current neutral rate of 2.5%. The Fed may have a hard time even achieving their long-run neutral rate of 2.5% for the Fed funds because Fed funds rate have peaked at lower and lower levels since 1980, with even 2% probably being more likely, which would mean a lower top for the 10-year Treasury yield. This is especially true with the shadow Fed funds rate from the Atlanta Fed currently at a negative 1.7%. Wuxi's shadow Fed Funds rate shows what the Fed Funds rate would be if a tentative easing through unconventional policies such as QE is factored in when policy rate is at the zero bound. So currently just removing the QE component of monetary policy would be, would be tightening policies between 1.45% and 1.7% since the current shadow rate is negative 1.7 and the current target range for the Fed Funds rate is 0 to, negative, zero to 0.25%. So, based on the Seattle Fed Funds rate increasing, the Fed Funds rate to two to two and a half percent would be like increasing the policy rate by three point four five to four point two five percent. So, what are some of the market implications? Investors could look to lengthen duration with safe core bonds such as Treasury as interest rates move higher, which would act as a potential head for a portfolio of risk assets if the stock market fell due to slower growth. Mortgage-backed securities could add additional core fixing exposure to a portfolio that tends to be less interest rate sensitive than treasuries. They provide more yield per duration than treasuries as well, while municipal bonds can add value based on those that may be impacted by potential income tax increases. In terms of more aggressive fixed income, preferred stock has longer duration with higher yields that would benefit from rates falling. The potential 4% plus yield for a group of primarily investment-grade rated securities is could be worth considering based on how they would fit personal investment goals and plans. Bank loans are below investment-grade debt that are typically priced with floating interest rates. Bank loans' floating rate structures may prove to be even more valuable should rate hikes impact the short end of the curve. In addition to mitigating any potential duration-induced return headwinds, bank loans' floating rate components increase the potential yield as securities' underlying coupons adjust to prevailing short-term market rates that they are tied to. Valuations on the S&P 500 are more expensive than mid-cap and small-cap stocks, while international emerging markets are cheaper than domestic stocks. We are currently in historically the strongest quarter of the year for the U.S. stock market, with investors' bullish settlement falling. Earnings growth has been strong, but markets tend to look forward at slower earnings that can lead to lower returns a year out. As the economic expansion moves into the mid-cycle, large-cap stocks tend to outperform small-cap Cyclical growth sectors tend to outperform cyclical value sectors, and defensive sectors do well. According to Ned Davis' research, if we look at market performance from the start of the actual tapering through the end of tapering back in 2014, large cap outperformed small cap, high-quality stocks outperform low-quality stocks, dividend payers outperform non-dividend payers, with the best sectors being real estate, healthcare, and utilities, which tend to be defensive sectors. Quality companies could perform well the next leg of the bull market and mid-cycle of the economic expansion as fiscal and monetary stimulus is pulled back, which would impact companies with more debt and weaker balance sheets. These quality companies that have free cash flow could use their funds to buy back stock. According to research from Charles Schwab, from February 2010 through December 2014, the stocks of U.S. companies that bought back their shares returned an impressive 149%, whereas the S&P 500 returned 93%. In Europe, the difference was even more staggering, with buyback stocks returning 120%, whereas the stock Europe 600 index returned just 35%. They go on to state that from November 2020 through August 2021, U.S. buyback stocks returned 55% versus the S&P 500 at 38%, and in Europe, buyback stocks returned 56% versus the stock 600 returning 38%. Dividend growth should be an area that investors should be invested in based on the lack of income available in core fixed income due to the lower interest rates, as well as an aging demographic in need of income. In addition, with valuations being a good predictor of long-term market returns, higher valuations now may mean that more of the return in the equity market comes from dividends in the future as it did from 2000 through 2010. Investors potentially could find higher dividend yield opportunities investing internationally with cheaper market valuations. When news continue to come out about the new variant and the Fed discussing speeding up their tapering of asset purchases at the next Fed meeting next week, as well as the geopolitical risk with Russia, China, and Iran, the markets could be more volatile over the next few weeks. The most important thing an investor can do to combat the volatility is to have a well diversified portfolio allocation based on their underlying goals, needs, and risk tolerance from a personal financial plan. A well diversified portfolio will help to limit risks that come from investing in the markets. This completes this episode of the Educating Investors podcast. I know that time is an important asset for everybody, so I appreciate you taking part of your day to listen. If you enjoyed the content of this podcast, feel free to share this with other friends and families that may be interested. Also, feel free to check out my website at www.harmonywealthmanagement.com to learn more about what I do, as well as to find my contact information and link to my LinkedIn page and blog. The Educating Investors Podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The information presented on the Educating Investors Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The Educating Investors Podcast is so Scott Peterson and his firm Harmony Wealth Management LLC should not be held liable for any losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on the Educating Investors Podcast show.